0: So excited about who's your one here at Hillcrest. Let me ask you a question. Have you identified that one? Have you done it yet? Have you put that person's name on a post it note, stuck it on our board back there? That thing is now covered over, but there's plenty of room for more. And so if you haven't done that, I pray that you will seek the Lord and say, God, give me a burden for at least one lost soul. Now, we ought to have a burden for many people that we know that don't know the Lord, but we're asking people in these important days, trying to take the confusion, I just laser focus on one, then identify that person by their first name, stick it up on the board, let that be a visual that our church is committed to reaching people with the gospel of Christ, a reflection of who we're praying for by the scores in the life of our church. And so, Be sure that you do that, and then as you pray, ask God to give you an open door, an opportunity to share the gospel with that person, that they might come to know the Jesus that has changed and revolutionized your life. We have uh, been emphasizing this theme in our preaching on these Sunday mornings here at the beginning of the year, and if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know that we looked at the all-encompassing subject of the gospel trying to make sure that we're clear about what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. The gospel is the good news that God has acted on his own initiative in love and mercy and compassion to deliver a fallen, broken humanity back to a right relationship with himself, and that God has done that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the glory of his great name throughout the world so we need to be clear about what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't because you won't effectively share the gospel if you've got a fuzzy understanding or interpretation of the gospel and then last week we looked at the very historic and important conversation that Jesus had with that Samaritan woman uh, at the well early in his ministry we looked at the importance of having meaningful gospel conversations and Jesus just takes us to school In terms of how to have a meaningful gospel conversation with someone who is lost. And if you remember from last week, we said that one of the hallmarks of an effective gospel conversation is drawing the net. In other words, giving a person with whom you've shared the gospel an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Gospel conversations means, first of all, that you have a willingness to meet people wherever they are. You don't have to appreciate everything about them or approve every decision that they make, but you're willing to meet them and engage with them right where they are. This was a very sinful woman that Jesus engaged. And he was breaking down all kinds of barriers, social taboos, in order to have a conversation with her. So you meet people wherever they are, and then you pray, Lord, at some point, give me an open door, and you transition the everyday conversation to a gospel conversation. You do as Jesus did, did, and you move from a discussion about drinking water to a discussion about living water. It is not a gospel conversation unless you get to the gospel. And it's not a gospel conversation unless and until you talk about the brokenness of sin and the remedy for sin, which, of course, is Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. And then, once you've done that, thirdly, you give people an opportunity to respond To the message of the gospel. You invite them, as it were, as we're going to find out today, to come. In fact, it's that last concept that we looked at last week that I'd like to flesh out a little bit more deeply today. Sometimes we refer to that as drawing the net. And so let's dig a little deeper this morning, come to a very famous parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 14. Parables, of course, uh, most of you will remember are just common stories. They're stories from everyday life and everyday issues about life um, that have a deeper meaning. Parables are stories from everyday life that are designed to illustrate and elaborate upon a deeper spiritual truth about life in the kingdom of God. The one thing all of the parables, some 35 or 40 of them depending on how you count, that Jesus told in the gospels The one thing they all have in common is that they have something to do with kingdom living, kingdom life, either kingdom living today in the broken world or kingdom living in the age to come. But they all have something to do with life in the kingdom. And Jesus is telling this particular parable that we'll read here in just a moment uh, concerning food, which makes it, of course, Baptist's favorite parable of all. It's even more popular than the prodigal son. Because food is something that we all uh, can relate to. We all enjoy it. Some of y'all are thinking about it this morning because you skipped breakfast, already got lunch plans on your mind. And so it's a very common uh, everyday point of interest that Jesus uses here. And boy, does our uh, culture um, just wrap its life around food. It's a situation where there are restaurants on every street corner We have food advertisements in front of us everywhere, on the television, on billboards, everywhere you go, everything you watch, you're interrupted, and uh, there's a craving that some advertiser is trying to create in you to make you convinced that you're hungry, even though you might not be. Whole uh, restaurant-themed channels are on television for you to watch, Uh, all of that having to do with the preparation and consumption of delicious food. Now, before we read the parable, it's important to notice that Jesus is at a table where there's really good food served. He's at a dinner party. And I want you to watch this. He's an invited guest. Everybody with me? Say amen. He's an invited guest at the home of a very very prominent Pharisee, a religious leader, on a Sabbath day. The Pharisees, I think, had gotten together and intentionally decided to invite the Lord Jesus Christ to this dinner party because they had ulterior motives. I think they really wanted to further examine him. Jesus did some stuff on the Sabbath day they didn't particularly like or think anybody should be doing. And so because Jesus was violating their understanding of this important concept known as the Sabbath by doing healing miracles and other types of things, the Bible says here, as a matter of fact, they were watching him carefully. They didn't like it when a guy like Jesus who everybody called rabbi, healed people on the Sabbath day because that was an offense to them. That violated their interpretation of the Sabbath law. So there's already a bit of tension in the room because Jesus, of course, knew their heart, just as he knew the heart of the Samaritan woman that he shared with last week. He knew their heart, and so they're around the table. It should be light. It should be lively, but there's some tension in the room. And Jesus kind of exacerbated the tension because he noticed as he looked around the table that he was like only uh, the only one that was there that was poor folk. Everybody else that was around that table were upper crust. And so this Pharisee hadn't invited anybody that was from the common, uh, from the common ranks of society. Only well-to-do people had been invited to the dinner party. And Jesus notices that verbally and kind of uh, needles the host a little bit, which further inflames, I think, the tension uh, to some degree. And so here's the thing. Being the good preacher that he is, by the time they got around to eating, Jesus had ticked off just about everybody in the room. And it's at that point some unnamed guest is sitting at the table. And he blurts out in verse 15, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, which is kind of his way of soothing things, calming things down a little bit. That's his way of saying, well, here's the thing. We're all going to eat bread at that great banquet table in the kingdom of God. So let's just rejoice. This party's gone to pot already, but a better day's coming. And one of these days we'll all be together there. And there won't be any tension once we get there. And so Jesus decides that that's an open door for him to share the gospel. Because one thing he knew is that not everybody's talking about heaven actually going to go there. Amen. There's a lot of people talk about heaven. A lot of people talk about eternity. A lot of people have their own self-concocted understanding about what heaven is and what heaven is not. But Jesus made it very clear that the road is narrow that leads to eternal life, and only a few actually find it. The road is broad that leads elsewhere, and many there are that travel on the broad road that leads to what he called destruction. There will indeed be a great banquet table in heaven. Jesus was going to affirm that fact in the telling of this parable. But he will not affirm that everybody around that table then or everybody in this room today is actually going to be there. Those who eventually will be there, those who do eventually dine at the great and eternal banquet table of the Lord are those indeed who hear the message of the gospel and then who respond to God's invitation to come to the table. Everybody with me? Now that's what's at heart. All of that kind of sets up the telling of the story. And it reminds us in these important days of discipleship and evangelism at our church how important it is for disciples of Christ to engage in the important ministry of inviting others to join us at God's banquet table. This is why it's so important that when God gives us an open door, not only do we share the gospel with them, but we learn to draw the net by inviting them to come to God's banquet table. Now, with all that said, here's the story. Verse 16 of Luke chapter 14. But Jesus said to him, "'A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, "'Come, for everything is now ready.'" But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I have to go and examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. That my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my banquet. Now, the first thing that you need to notice about this parable is that there is this gracious invitation that's given by the host you know, back in those days, it was very customary for two invitations to be given to dinner parties like these at the house of the Pharisee. They'd be planned in advance and there would be an initial invitation that would go out several days before the event. You have to keep in mind, you know, we did the people back then didn't carry pocket calendars like they do today. They didn't even have the old school paper calendars like we do today. And so it was important to have regular intervals of reminding people what they were and were not supposed to do. And so you would send out an Initial invitation, and then you would be obligated to respond to it. And when you did, you would give the host an idea about how much food that he needed to prepare. And then, because again, people didn't keep calendars then like we do today, there would be a second invitation that goes out. Now, even though we keep calendars really intricately today, that's still kind of the case, particularly with weddings, right? I mean, I get these save the date cards. I've gotten two save the date cards in like the last two weeks for weddings. Now, they're not an invitation to the wedding, kind of not. They really are because the person is telling you, I want you to write this date on your calendar so you don't forget it and don't double book. And then later on at some point, you're going to get an actual invitation with an RSVP in it likely to which you shall respond. And that helps to give those persons an opportunity to know how much food needs to be prepared. And that was the case here. There would be a first invitation, second invitation right before the event, uh, and because you'd agreed to come when the first invitation went out, you were pretty much, in the social customs of that day, obligated to show up and respond. Uh, that's kind of bound into the uh, to the. Uh, miracle account in John chapter 2 when Jesus was invited to the wedding at Cana of Galilee and they ran out of wedding wine, right? And everybody was in a panic because there was a social obligation to keep those people that you had invited and who had agreed to come well stocked with food and drink. And if you didn't do that, you broke social custom. And that's kind of what you have going on here. It would have been a huge breach of social etiquette to have agreed to come and then to not show up. And one of the reasons that God, as it relates to us, one of the reasons that God wants us to be clear with people that we're sharing the gospel with and to give them a clear cut, not only a clear understanding of the gospel, but a clear invitation to respond to the gospel is because God's already invited them to come you're really not giving your invitation of that person to come to the banquet table. You're just repeating the invitation that God has already given them. So it's very important because God's invited them that we learn to clue them in on this gracious heavenly invitation that's come to them from the Father through Jesus Christ. This story is kind of allegorical because every person, person or part of the story is representative of something theologically. The host, for example, in the parable is God the Father. God the Father is the one that's doing the the inviting. And the messenger that's being sent out is a representation, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the servant, the great suffering servant that Jesus came. And uh, he came to give that second invitation to the ones that were originally invited. And the ones that were originally invited were who? They were the Jews, right? The chosen people of God. God called them unto himself, holy, but God wasn't finished with his eternal work. And God was still working his great plan of redemption through the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, And so the many who were first invited were his people who were called from the very beginning, the chosen of God. And with the coming of Jesus Christ, it was now time for them to receive their second invitation. That's what Jesus came to do. Christ had come. That's the second invitation. The Messiah that you've been looking for for all these centuries, he's finally arrived. The kingdom has drawn near. That was the basis of the preaching of Jesus Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of God has drawn near, and of course it had drawn near to the people of God in the coming and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is that servant bringing the second invitation to the people of God. Come, everything is now ready. In fact, the invitation is bound up in that simple biblical word. One of the greatest words in all the Bible is the word what? Come, that's right. That's the great invitation of the Bible. You see it all over the Bible. Noah used it when he stood at the door of the ark. And what did he say to the people? Come, come in, come and be saved. Isaiah said it when he pleaded with a stubborn, obstinate, stiff-necked, backslidden Israel. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Jesus used it all the time in his three-year ministry. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. He gives, I think Jesus does, one of the strongest uses of the word come in all of the Bible. When in the 11th chapter of Matthew, he bids us to come to him and find rest. Come unto me, all y'all who are burdened and heavy laden ground down by the stuff of life into the dust of life, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. Oswald Chambers says these words, the questions that truly matter in life are remarkably few, and they're all answered by these words, come unto me. Can I have an amen? See, that's a great statement, because they are really, as I've said a thousand times, There are really only four or five major questions in life that really count when you think about eternity. Who is God? Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going when I die? I mean, that's really, those are the five eternal questions that you and everybody else has to come to grip with. And every one of them, every one of those can be answered with the invitation of Jesus Christ. Come unto me. And until you volitionally make a choice by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that comes into your life through the preaching of the gospel or the sharing of the gospel or the testimony of the gospel, until you release your life and come to Jesus, you'll spend the rest of your life grappling with those five questions. Because they can only be answered with a right understanding of and a right relationship with God the Son who is Jesus Christ. So what i I think what I'm trying to communicate, the gospel is invitational by design. By design. Because it's not our invitation. We just, as we're going to find out in a moment, we're just God's ambassadors carrying his message and imploring people on his behalf to be reconciled to God. And being reconciled to God only happens one way, and that is when you drop your defenses. And come to Jesus, because only Jesus can save. God made all of that possible through the work of Christ on the cross. I'm just saying, man, with every drop of blood that fell from the cross and splattered into the dirt, you can hear the voice of God crying out, come, come, for everything is now ready. Only the coming of Christ made everything ready. And now... Those of us who know him are duty-bound to go and invite people to come to the table. And the only requirement to come to the table is to accept God's invitation and show up hungry, which we probably won't have any problem doing. Amen. Now, here's the sad truth. I mean, that's the good news. It's not complicated. But the sad news is most people, well, bucket, won't they? At least at first. Most people give you the stiff arm. That's why most Christians don't like to share the gospel. You know why you don't like to share the gospel? Same reason I don't sometimes often like to do it. And I have to be remembered. It's my compulsion to do it. Because I don't like to get stiff armed. You don't like to hear the word no. Here's the thing, we got to get over that we got to get over it. we got to be okay with people saying no. And the reason is most people probably say no, at least at first. Because remember, the, most people are on the broad road, and they're there because they want to be on the broad road. <clears throat> they think it's more fun on the broad road. They think they have more freedom on the broad road. And so you're going to get stiff-armed much of the time. And that's what happens to the messenger here. I mean, that's what happened to Jesus. For crying out loud, our Savior came unto his own, and his own received him not. Nobody's ever been stiff-armed any more than Jesus Christ. Aren't you grateful he still came? Oh, I don't want to get stiff-armed. I'm staying right here on this throne in heaven. I ain't moving. Aren't you grateful? That wasn't his attitude. He humbled himself. He condescended. He came down to us when we could not build a tower to him or a ladder, or a stairway, or any other vehicle on our own volition. He came to us, and we're grateful. And when he came, he got the stiff arm from his own people. All these excuses. You notice how many excuses are in here? Second invitation. Rude, rude, rude. Because remember, that second invitation initially is going to the people of God. The Jews but he came into his own and his own people received him not wonderful feast had been prepared heavenly father had invited people he'd done all the work man you think people be clamoring to accept that kind of invitation the event of a lifetime the event of eternity and yet we read in verse 18 but they all alike began to make what? excuses, excuses. I mean, it happens all the time. <clears throat> There's a popular Southern Gospel song about excuses that came out years and years ago. And the same thing happened. Most of us preach, uh, preach, uh, preachers are idealistic by nature. And, I, you know, we share the Gospel in some form or fashion. We may not do a complete unpacking of the Gospel every single Sunday. It depends on what we're doing. But we make a beeline to the Gospel every Sunday. We give a Gospel appeal every single Sunday. And when I do, I'm still idealistic enough to think, you know what, man, that the preaching of the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to have 800 people flung at this altar today. And they're going to be compelled, and it's never 800 people. Never anywhere close to that, right? And the reason that's true is because even though there are people always in a room this size who need to be saved every week, there are a lot of people today who need to be saved. You have no assurance of heaven whatsoever. It's not that God hasn't invited you. It's not that God is not wooing you. We're sharing the gospel. It's because there's some excuse in your life that's keeping you from responding to the message of the gospel. That's what happens here. Three distinct excuses that tend to be common. The first is wealth, Right? Is that ever an impediment to people coming to Jesus Christ, right? Sure it is, oftentimes. Money, because that's the number one. Listen, that's the number one God substitute, isn't it? More people worship money than worship anything else alive today on planet Earth. Life's about money. People are motivated by money. And you see that happening here. The servant goes out to the first house. Man comes to the door, three-piece business suit invitation is extended come to the feast you said you were coming come on to the feast and he says you know what I can't do it and his excuse was that he brought a piece of property and, he need, a property and he needed to go check it out need to go see it I can't come well I would think he was a very good businessman if he bought a piece of property sight unseen amen sight unseen it's a lame excuse because none of us sitting in the room, even those of us who don't have a lick of business sense, and that's me, no better than buying a piece of property that you hadn't even laid eyes on. And even if that were the case, <clears throat> 24 hours ain't going to make any difference. The land wasn't going anywhere. It'd still be there the day after tomorrow. Come on Now, so delay, do what you need to do, and then go check it out later is just an excuse. Then a second man is visited, and he gives work as his excuse. Do we ever hear that? I'm too busy. Amen? A lot of people throw that back in your face. I'm too busy. So what's what he does here. This guy is not in a business suit. He's got chaps on and a 10-gallon hat on his head. Come to the feast, and the cowboy says, nope, can't do it. I just bought five yoke of oxen, and I need to go check them out. Well, it's the same principle. For all he knew, they were scrawny, good-for-nothing oxen, Right? you buy buying them and you haven't even seen them yet. That'd be like buying five used cars without even laying eyes on the cars. Not checking them out, not test driving them first. Doesn't make any sense. And then there's a final excuse, goes to a guy, evidently he's a young guy, and he gives his wife as an excuse. I can't come. I just got married. He was paralyzed by love so we're led to believe. But that was an excuse, right? They probably had no money. She probably didn't even know how to cook. You'd think they're going to a dinner party, but first thing on his mind. (laughs) No, I just didn't want to go. So it was an excuse. Unreasonable excuses, all three were. Because the people, and that's the import of the story. They didn't want to come. They didn't want to be there. Focused on all the wrong things. And that banquet just wasn't high on their priority list. And we think about that. I mean, those of us that have walked with the Lord Jesus Christ and followed the Lord Jesus Christ, we hear those kinds of excuses. And we filter them through a different set of lenses, don't we? Because we think, what business could be more important than knowing who God is and knowing who you are and why you're here and what your purpose in life truly is and having absolute assurance about what's going to happen when you die. And do I need to remind everybody this morning? You're going to die. Your friends are going to die. Your children are going to die. Your family, everybody is facing death short of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And why would any business matter more than knowing how you're going to spend the rest of eternity? What relationship could possibly be more important than our relationship with the eternal God from whom we all have come? People still make excuses today. And they may not be identical to these, but most of them can be traced back to one of those three big categories, either money or or busyness, or relationships, or something of uh, that strain. And a lot of people are just as unreasonable today as they were back in the first century in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the time, people will equate salvation with the church, and because they have stereotyped images of what the church is, they'll stiff-arm the messenger because they don't like the church. Well, there are hypocrites in the church. Everybody in here has heard that, right? Do tell, do tell. There are hypocrites in every organization. That doesn't keep you out of the doors of any other organization where you know that there are hypocrites. There are hypocrites in this organization. There are hypocrites in this church. People living two-faced kind of life. An external life that's betrayed by a different internal kind of life. But that doesn't mean everybody is. In fact, I'm convinced that that's a minority, a great minority in the church. And Adrian Rogers used to say, you let a hypocrite keep you away from God, then the hypocrite's closer to God than you are. Amen. Think about that a minute. If he gets between you and God, he's closer to God than you are. And that's true. So you don't want to do that. Some people will stiff arm you because they feel like they'll have to give up too much. You know, the only thing you give up to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and it doesn't happen all at once, is sin. There's a radical repriority that takes place, but it's a radical repriority that you want to do once you surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people will delay. They'll say, well, I'm waiting on a certain feeling. I just need, I don't feel. Well, God's not obligated to give anybody a certain kind of feeling. Some people come to Christ with great emotion and great fanfare, other people, not so much. So there's no specific kind of feeling. I've had people tell me there's no way I could live that kind of life, to which I respond, neither can I. But what can happen is the Spirit of God can infuse your life and fill your life and indwell your life. And the Christian life is not a life that's designed for you or me or anybody else to live. It's designed for Christ to live it through us that can happen to my life or to yours or to anybody else's. And then some people say they're just too busy. To which I respond, you got time to do what you want to do. You got time to do exactly what you want to do. And by the way, you're not promised another minute of life. Procrastination in the kingdom of God is immediate disobedience in God's eyes. And none of us are promised another breath of life. That's why it's so important to respond when the Spirit of God compels your heart, life, and soul to come to Jesus. When Queen Elizabeth II was invested as Queen of England in 1950, there were invitations, beautiful invitations that were sent out only to very important people. There was only a small, select group of people that could fit in Westminster Abbey for her coronation. And at the bottom of the invitation were printed these words, all excuses ceasing. Man, when the queen invites you, you don't make excuses. and You shouldn't make excuses when the king of kings and the lord of lords issues an eternal invitation. Monarchs come and go. But Jesus is forever, amen? And eternity is on the line. And the invitation is an eternal invitation. And the last thing that needs to stand in the way is any excuse where you place something or someone ahead of the most pressing issue in human life, which is a right relationship with God. Now there's a final aspect of this parable and indeed what makes the parable so encouraging is that it reminds us what kind of house does God want at his banquet table? He wants a what? He wants a full house. There's just no mistaking that. God wants people to come to the banquet and this is how you can know that the master's invitation has come to people. It's for people that you know. It's for people that I know. It's for people that are here today. It's how to know That if you want to come to Jesus, you can come to Jesus. The invitation is coming to you from God. And the whole import of the last part of the parable, where God takes the messenger and he says, okay, you came into your own, your own received you not. Now let's broaden the invitation. And that's exactly what happens here. When Christ says, come for everything is now ready. As a gospel preacher this morning, I'm here to tell you, that's an invitation that's for you today. He's talking to people in this room. He's talking to people in the relationships of our lives. And to be sure, there'll be some people that refuse to come. It's not our responsibility to drive people. It's our responsibility to share the gospel and allow the Spirit of God to draw people. Jesus told his disciples, there'll be some people when you go on your preaching mission and he sent them out in Matthew chapter 10, two by two, And he said, you're going to come to some towns and they're just not going to like what you have to say. And if they're rude and if they're obstinate and if they're stiff-necked, move it along. Move along, little doggie. Amen. And shake the dust off of your sandals and move on. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. It's what happens in this invitation here. There's a lot of refusing And the master of the banquet tells the messenger, it's time to move on. Some accepted, some in the Jews accepted, but not everybody did. And because God's not satisfied with the near empty table, He does a very loving thing. He broadens the invitation, He sends a wider invitation, casts a wider net to those who are on the outskirts of society the poor, the outcast, the lame, the beggar, the lost, the rejected, the sinner. Jesus made it clear, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's what got him in trouble with the likes of this Pharisee at whose table Jesus is setting. Because he associated with tax collectors and sinners. And many had assumed that Jesus was a gluttonous winebibber because of the way he practiced the gospel ministry. But this is the mercy and the grace of God in action. We've made it very clear. Who is the gospel for? The gospel is for All the nations, Romans chapter 1. This good news of great joy is for all people. And that means that no disability, no sin, no past choice, no pain, no heartache, no trouble, nothing disqualifies from being invited to God's banquet table so after that even, a broader net is cast. And when the messenger has gone out a second time and brought in the poor and the lame, God says there's still room. And for a third time, he tells the servant, verse 23, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. And, you know, that's important for those of us who already have a place at the table. Most of us in the room today would say, I've got a place at the banquet table, myself included. But for those of us, this becomes our charge because this becomes our mission. Jesus later turns this parable into what we call, this mission into what we call the great commission. It becomes part and parcel of the last teaching that he gives his remaining disciples on earth before he ascends to heaven. And the word that he uses here is a very strong word in the Greek New Testament. The word compelled, go out into the byways, the highways and the hedges to the towns and the countries and to the big cities alike. Go out into the secret places and compel people to come in. That doesn't mean you take your 1611 family Bible and pound them over the head with it and then drag them to church. But what it does mean is that we're to be intentional, and active and aggressive in seeking those who haven't gotten word that there is a great invitation to a royal celebration and inviting them to come. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal, how? Say it out loud, through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. This is the essence of the message. We implore you on behalf of Christ, and here's what we're urging. Be reconciled to God. That's just carrying God's invitation for people to come to Jesus. Now, you see that in the response of the Samaritan woman. That's basically what Jesus himself did with the Samaritan woman. Jesus invites her to find life by receiving a gift that only He could give. If you knew who it was who was speaking to you and the gift that only He could give you, you would have asked Him and He would have given you what? Living water. And the Bible says she dropped that well. It was the most priceless thing she owned. She dropped that, not the well, but the jug, the jar left it there, turned away from that which was old and tired and burdensome. And she went and began to tell everybody in her town what the Lord had done for her. Come, that's what she said, come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Now, brothers and sisters, that's our mission at Hillcrest, to use words. You remember we talked about that last week, too. Contrary to the conventional wisdom, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. It's like saying feed the hungry if necessary, use food. No, the gospel requires words. We have to connect with people, share with people, transition to the gospel through the everyday occurrences of life. And then when we do, you always invite them to respond. As God gives the opportunity, come see a man who can radically revolutionize your life. Listen, no excuse is going to stand. One of these days we'll all be standing in the presence of a holy God, And I'm telling you, for those of you here today that you don't have a right relationship with the Lord, you can keep clinging to those excuses. But what's going to happen is, if you don't drop them, you'll take them all the way into the judgment of God. And you can do that if you want to, but it won't be a pretty picture. And your eternal future won't be hopeful or optimistic in the least. Instead, what you want to do is like that Samaritan woman. Drop everything that you think is important to you in order to receive a gift that only Christ can give you, which is the gift of living water, everlasting life. The great banquet hall of heaven never runs out of room. And filling it up begins with you and me, brothers and sisters in Christ, having a burden that all starts with one and simply inviting them to come.